the political situation is quite different because what's happening in the United States is the red states controlled by Republicans. This sounds politically partisan, but I don't care about partisan politics, ex except anthropologically. It's like tribal studies. I don't care about that. What I care about is objectively measurable data. I am a data person. So everything I'm telling you is entirely based on data. It has nothing to do with political partisanship. But if you look at it, what you see is that the red states, particularly in the South, are failing. The maternal mortality rate in Mississippi or Louisiana is worse than some countries in Africa. You have huge problems in education, in child birth, baby mortality. You have enormous problems. They're not preparing for climate change, and yet they're going to be severely impacted by it. So if you look at the Dobbs decision, you can already see women leaving red states I just saw a study about young women not choosing colleges in red states because of this abortion issue. OBGYN doctors are leaving the red states because they feel under threat. Medical deserts, because we don't really have health care in the United States. We have a, an illness profit system. Mm -hmm. Everything is geared to profit. It's not really geared to well-being. And what has happened is that, particularly in red states, what are called medical deserts have arisen, where, for instance, in some of these northern red states, if you were a woman and your water broke at two in the morning, you probably would deliver your child in the truck because you might have to drive 150 miles to get to a hospital where you could deliver a baby. So there's huge problems about this, the breakdown of, of medical care, the shift that's occurring. Medical schools are having problems in red states because people, particularly women, are not choosing to come there. They can't teach full OBGYN practice because of the fear that they're going to be persecuted. You now have efforts in red states to make it illegal to leave the state to go to get an abortion. So it's having enormous effects on the well-being of these states. Whereas in the blue states, they're prospering because people are moving into them. It's changing education. You, you see this whole business about culture issues that are going on with Ron DeSantis now in Florida, which are being echoed in other states about you can teach this, you can't teach that, taking books out of libraries, all of that. So these are big radical changes, which are trends which are occurring. And the 2050s and the 2060s describe a world, as I say, in which people are living mostly in smaller communities, where power has moved down to the states. It's what the red states are trying for, but they're going to regret it, I believe, because the blue states are going to adopt it. You know, right now, if you live in a red state, for every dollar that the state puts in the federal treasury, they take more than a dollar out. And the blue states put a dollar in and take less than a dollar out. So you're beginning to see discussions about the fact that 
blue states are getting tired of funding the failure of red states because that extra money that to put a dollar in and take more than a dollar out is being funded by blue states. So I think we're going to see a radical restructuring of the United States. And I have focused, because I live in the United States, that's been my principal focus, although other countries are also going to be severely impacted. In fact, there are some countries like Bangladesh that I'm not sure they're going to survive as countries because of sea rise. You know, a third of Pakistan was underwater this last fall. So you look at what's happening in, for instance, the oil industry countries in the Middle East, they're trying to build themselves up now as tourist destinations. I was in Qatar not very long ago because they recognize that as we move away from the carbon era, oil and gas, I mean, you're going to see, a, for instance, the enormous effect that's already occurring in Russia as a result of the Germans and other European countries that were using Russian oil and gas mm -hmm. are no longer using it. And so they're finding it harder and harder to where to sell it. And as countries move out of carbon energy period, those economies which are dependent on carbon industries are going to be in deep trouble. So it's going to be a, a very different world, existentially different world by 2060. That's not all bad. What I'm really concerned with right now, mm -hmm. I didn't understand it uh, at the time because I didn't, it didn't exist, is the creation of another species of humans, Homo superior. That's probably related to CRISPR, isn't it? Yes. And what's happening with the CRISPR technologies, mostly in Asia, by the way, and it's going to be funded mostly and will be used mostly by very rich people because it will be very expensive. But if you could manipulate your genetic makeup that you passed on to your children so that they were as smart as Einstein and as handsome as name your movie star and as physically strong as Michael Jordan and through gene lining that got passed on. And suppose you had 100,000 people like that who were also millionaires or billionaires. What would the Homo sapiens do? Well, it's going to be a genetic arms race, is the, would be the yes, most logical question. And, and, yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's when the remote viewers began describing this kind of thing to me, I just couldn't make any sense of it. So now I'm going to do another iteration of this experiment. As I say, it's been going on for 45 years. I'm going to do another iteration just focusing on the insights which have arisen out of the analysis of the 2050 and the 2060 data to see if I can fine-tune this a little more and get a better understanding because the accuracy of the data has proven to be so reliable based on the trends you can see, not non-locally or through remote viewing, but just that you see going on. You see the accuracy of this, and so I'm trying to get a better sense of exactly what this event in 2040 to 2045, or a series of events, climate change, end of carbon energy, pandemics, lower population, change of political structure, 
all of that. I'm going to try to get a better understanding of it. But it is clear to me that the 2060s describe whatever it was in 2040, 2045. They describe themselves as being on the other side of it. And so... Did you see any signs of a famine potentially caused by the drying up or the beginning of the drying up of the Ogallala aquifer? There are definite hunger issues that are going on. But what I see in the descriptions that they give is that communities function differently. They have organized communal gardens, for instance, where they grow their own food. And if you look at the rise of farmers markets and that kind of thing, you can see this is going on. Just to give you an example, my wife is a biodynamic organic gardener, a master gardener, and she grows all our food except for proteins and oils. So I think in the cities, we're going to begin seeing, first of all, radically different kinds of architecture, the, the greening of architecture, the conversion of existing buildings as a result of the remote work stuff going on, of turning buildings into local green gardening facilities, for want of a better term. So uh, the, the whole food situation is, yes, there is hunger, but, but the main thing that stands out for me as I look at the data and as I do an analysis intellectually from publications and research journals is that that is already underway. It's going to become very difficult not so much in the United States, but in other countries, particularly in Africa and Middle East, parts of Asia. This is going to become a huge issue. I haven't focused as much on how they're going to resolve it as I have on the United States. But yes, food is going to be an issue. Water is going to be an issue. Potable water is going to be an issue. America's infrastructure is so old, mm. the piping in cities can be 100 years old. Yeah. If you look at, for instance, a place like Jackson, Mississippi, the state capital, they don't have potable water. Or you look at Flint, Michigan, they don't have potable water. So how water is going to be dealt with is uh, radically different. And I also notice I've begun following real estate issues, and I notice that very rich people are buying up springs and water facilities because their advisors are telling them this is going to be a big issue. Wealth inequality is another thing I want to really focus on, which I didn't really understand when I started in 78. So I didn't ask the questions. And so what I was struck My guess with is, is it gets much worse. <laughs> it does. It's that, yeah. it's that people would talk about it, but I didn't even understand what they were saying. I mean, as I told you, when I started this, I was very concerned not to get too far out into the future because I was fearful that I wouldn't understand what was going on. And let me give you an example of that. As I said, mentioned earlier, Jules Verne, Jules Verne, after he wrote 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, wrote a book about Paris in the 1960s. 
and he sent it to his editor, and his editor said to him after reading it, Jules, as your friend and your editor, this is just nonsense. Nobody's going to believe this. I advise you to just put this away and forget about it. I'm not going to publish it. Why? Because the book that Jules Verne wrote about Paris in the 1960s said, first of all, there are no horses. People travel in internal combustion vehicles. That corporations dominate the economy, which, of course, in the 1850s when he was writing wasn't true. That women are a big part of the corporations. Women, that, you know, nobody could believe that. Mm -hmm. That business communications is transmitted, this is really amazing, by facsimile machines. And of course, in 1960, fax machines, that was... Did he use that exact language, facsimile? Facsimile machine, facsimile machine is exactly the word he used. Wow. And he said, and Paris is dominated by a huge metal tower that has become its iconic symbol. And of course, the Eiffel Tower didn't exist yet. Anyway, his editor just thought, well, this is all nonsense. I'm not going to publish it. It will embarrass you and it will hurt your reputation. And so Vern did what he was told. He put it away and never published it and put the correspondence away. And in the late 80s, early 90s, an heir to Vern's, must have been a great-grandson or something, inherited a farm. And when he went up to the farm underneath one of the tables in the barn, there was a small safe. And he said to the tenant farmer, what's in the safe? And the tenant farmer said, I have no idea. I don't know how to open it. My father couldn't open it either. It's just, there it is. So he had a locksmith come up and, and open it. And in it, they found this manuscript and the correspondence. That's how I know this. And he published it. The whole thing. And I think it was 91. And I read this. And when I was doing this research, my concern about getting too far into the future. And I thought, well, here's proof that I was correct. That if you get too far out, it was a hundred years almost. And if you get too far out, you just don't understand what they're saying. And so one of the things that I'm realizing as I go through this data, the 2050-2060 data, is that there were things that I just didn't understand. And I should have asked questions, but I didn't even know to ask the question, like the climate change. Why are things underwater? Oh, well, it's just, I don't know, the weather's different. Well, you know, I didn't know to ask well, why is the weather different? You see, that's I should have, but I didn't. So I'm going to do a third iteration of this experiment. It's going to start probably later this year. And I'm going to try to fine tune the insights that I have gotten from the 50 and 60 data. And also what I have learned by studying trends just in conventional ways. Now, what were you able to see in terms of this increase in wealth? I can posit, right, if you have massive destruction on the coasts, people who were formerly rich on the coasts 
are suddenly penniless. And as that happens, as you move further inland and you move to the places that haven't been damaged by these crises, the value of property is going to go up there. So just by doing nothing, you're going to have an increase in wealth inequality. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, you can already see it happening. I, I live on an island off the coast of Washington state, and I can just look at our property values in the years that I've lived here. It's just astonishing. And it's because... People are leaving states which have problems, either because of the kind of politics that have developed or because of weather issues or because of health, uh, medical issues, that is access to medical facilities. People are moving to states like Washington mm -hmm. and it's driving uh, real estate values up. So from my point of view, that's very nice. It's gotten so bad where I live, for instance, that it's very hard for restaurants to get people to work in the restaurants because they can't afford the apartments that are available. So yes, I think wealth inequality, we have the worst wealth inequality in the world. Four individuals have as much wealth as 48% of the population. We have become an oligarchic anocracy. Well, you can see so, it in the political system, right? Yes, just, absolutely. The yeah. Citizens United, for instance, basically legalized bribery. And so what you see at the federal level is people who are cartoon characters, but who have been backed by dark money. And you have a small group of people who basically rent the Congress to yeah. achieve the results they want. Just think about this, this idea we're going to eliminate the income tax, but we're going to add a 30% value-added tax to everything. Well, you know... It's a regressive tax, right. Yeah, I mean, if you're a single right. mother who's working at $15 an hour and everything that you buy goes up by 30%, how do you possibly cope with that? Yeah, it's just, it but, just piles on to the inflation we're already yeah, seeing, exactly. which is exacerbated by the conflict... The increase in spending at the federal level, which is inspired by the people backing Congress. I mean, there's just there's a there's a lot. <laughs> the, the Fed's yeah. loose policy of money is effectively a hidden tax on people, and which actually leads to another. What did you see in terms of the strength of the dollar, the petrodollar? Is it gone now? Does the U.S. dollar? I didn't as... ask that question, so I don't know. Okay. Again, you see, because I'm looking into the future uh, with remote viewing. There are a lot of times where I either A, don't know to ask the right question, or B, I don't understand what they're telling me. For instance, in terms of energy, they talk about a, a box with a new technology, and it gets warm, but not hot. And you get a different size box to power a building or to power a car. So I don't know what the box is. It sounds like a battery. No, I don't think so. I think it's a new technology, but I didn't know enough when I first heard this to ask them to describe it in greater detail. This is an insane comment, but there was a breakthrough at Livermore about a month ago with fusion technology, but I'm not sure yes, if that's something that... That could be compartmentalized and put in anybody's home, but maybe, I don't know. 
Maybe it's that. I don't either. That's the point. So that's why yeah. I want to do this third iteration because I have all these questions that have arisen from the analysis of the 2050-2060 data. I don't know about these pandemics, for instance. I, I know that there are going to be other pandemics. Certainly it is true that viruses and bacteria are mutating in order to accommodate the changed environment that they're in and that we aren't going to have protection for it. So I can see where the pandemics would come from, but I'm going to try to get more information about them. What, about pathogens, what about pathogens that have been around for millions of years, but they've just been buried in ice that are exposed from climate change? Uh, again, I didn't ask because I had no idea that this was going to happen. The melting of the polar area I just never thought about it. I didn't know now, anybody that thought about it. Now, you had alluded to this at the beginning, but I'm going to ask again. And, and I've heard you speak about this particular topic on other podcasts. There's two, but I'm going to lump them together. So you mentioned earlier whether or not we would establish contact with some non-human intelligence. Was anything indicative in your viewing of 2050 or 2060 that suggested some such event? No, I didn't ask the question, so I don't have that. I will tell you I have been following this issue since the 1950s. And what I think is going on is that we are being observed by what amount to cultural anthropologists, mm -hmm. because I think on any planet with any species on any planet, that as you develop technology, this is just a universal, you get to a point in the development of technology where you either, if you don't recognize the matrix of consciousness, you either destroy... That's exactly my next question. That was exactly my next question about spiritual... Yeah, you, either destroy, you either destroy yourself with the technology or you wake up to the fact that you are part of a matrix of consciousness and that the role of the dominant species is to foster well-being and that we are at that phase, we are at that place and that we're being observed. And is it possible that they are waiting to see whether we're going to destroy ourselves either through war or climate change or whatever, or are we going to wake up? Now, the good news is that slowly science is beginning to recognize that all consciousness is interconnected and interdependent, and they are beginning to accept consciousness as a legitimate part of science. This is the good news because, you know, in 1931, Max Planck, the father of quantum mechanics, was interviewed by the Observer newspaper. He didn't give a lot of interviews, so it was a big deal. And they said to him, you and Einstein are the most famous scientists in the world. What have you learned? <laughs> and he said, what I've learned, and I think they thought he would talk about molecules and atoms or whatever. But what he said was, what I've learned is that consciousness is causal and fundamental. You cannot get behind consciousness. 
space-time, physical reality, arises from consciousness, not consciousness from space-time. Now, if you begin to think about this, Sean, what you realize is that the two real issues are the mystery questions is what is consciousness and what is information? Because basically what science is now beginning to tell us, and Daily Beast just ran a paper on all physicists are beginning to realize space-time is an illusion, is that what we are living in, what we call reality, is an informational construct created by intentioned consciousness. Yeah, it's like a holographic matrix field, essentially. Yeah, well, not a field, because the field is a space-time word. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but it's an information architecture. Just leave it at that. And that because all consciousness is interconnected and interdependent at the non-local level, that to prosper, you must foster well-being. And that's become one of my major issues. And one of the major things I study and talk about and report is that we need to recognize that we do not have dominion over the world. It was not like a rich bank account that was left by an uncle. That instead, we are simply a part of a matrix of consciousness. And that you cannot go along building your technologies only on the basis of profit. You have to begin to create technologies that foster well-being. And one of the things that I'm going to be looking at in this next round is this issue of what kind of new technologies arise that foster well-being. Because clearly things like, well, like the oil industry is an obvious example that create incredible pollution problems and also the way we fish, breaking down the ocean ecosystems, the pollution that we create, the toxic chemicals in our lives, all of that. All of that has to change. And when I look at the 50s and 60s data, that is what it looks like they've done. They describe things as much more organic. They describe things as much less polluting. Mm -hmm. So the 2060s live in environments and in communities that are focused very differently than the communities today. So that's the good news. I think we're going to wake up. We are slowly waking up. Consciousness, people believe that the, the consciousness was entirely physiologically based and it was entirely based on the brain and blah, blah, blah. And right. all of that turns out not to be true. And although materialism is still the dominant worldview, it is beginning to change. The paradigm is changing. A man named Thomas Kuhn, who wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, describes the process in great detail. I've tried to describe it in my books. I started writing novels in order to get this across. I wrote a novel, Awakening, for instance, that, that's about this. I think we survive. That's the good news. We seem to, at least in some areas, prosper. That's the good news. We don't have huge overpopulation problems. That's the good news. 
race and gender issues seem to have largely disappeared, been resolved. That's the good news. The bad news is this business about creating another species mm -hmm. and, and the wealth inequality that results from or is a factor in, maybe that's a better way to put it. That's the bad news. We seem to have resolved the energy issue in a non-polluting way. That's good news. I'm not sure about the survival of democracy. That's another thing I want to focus on. So I don't know about that yet. But we're going to have radical change, and particularly 2040 to 2045. And you know, I mean, 2040, what, that's 17, 17 years from now? So it's coming at us very quickly. The one thing that I have come away with is everything you do, every choice you make. In fact, let me close with this. Every day, every single one of us make dozens of little choices. We choose the toothpaste we buy, the toilet paper we buy, the cat food we buy, the dog food, whatever, the cleansing products we buy. Every one of those is a vote either to support well-being or degrade it. And so each of us must make the commitment that every choice I make will choose the most life-affirming, compassionate, fostering of well-being decision that I can make based on my understanding. And I will tell 10 people that I'm doing this as a discipline and invite them to join me. Because we know from research that when 10% of any cohort, whether it's a church group, a school committee, or a nation, changes in consciousness that the whole cohort has to adjust. Mm -hmm. And you can see this happening. Look at the struggle we're going through right now about the LGBTQ. Look at smoking. When you were a boy, lots of people smoked. You went to somebody's house, there were ashtrays on the table. You don't see that anymore. Why? Did somebody pass a law that said you can't smoke? No. There was a change in consciousness. So what we need to do is change in consciousness, because when you change in consciousness, you make different choices. And if you always choose of the options available to you, the option that is the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being, then you become an agent of change. And if you tell people you're doing it, invite them to join you in doing it. For instance, to give you an example, if just the people that will listen to this podcast will do this, they will change the election outcome in 2024. Question for you. Transhumanism, direct biological integration of technology with human beings. Do you see that trend increasing or is that going to be enveloped by the homo sapiens superior? Well, I think the AI technologies are going to continue. The thing you have to be clear about is that AIs are not conscious in the sense that we're talking about. They are manifestations of intentioned consciousness creating an information architecture. So I think AIs are going to increase. One of the things 
that I have been looking at, although it doesn't seem to be an issue, is have AIs become so dominant that they're running how the world works? I don't get that. So I think we get through that one. I know a lot of people are worried about it, but it doesn't seem to be an issue. But AIs definitely do play a role in the future. Actually, I think a good role. But the main thing is this shift in consciousness to recognize that you must support well-being. Because the well-being of everything from the bacteria in the soil to human beings, the whole chain of creation is interlinked and interdependent. And when you hurt one part of it, you hurt all of it. And so we must make this decision as individuals to be agents of change supporting well-being. And, and if I don't get anything, environment. Yeah. Yeah, if I don't get anything else across to you in this podcast, that's the most important message I can give you. It's been with us for thousands of years, but people forget. Treat your neighbor like yourself, right? Turn the other cheek. Take care of your environment because that's where you live and that's where others live. So 100% agree with that, my friend. Good. All right. Well, thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure, Stefan. And I appreciate the time that you spent with me here. Good. All right. Thank you. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.